Now, if you missed uh, our study, if you're new and visiting, we've been in a year-long look at the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we had Jesus. Uh, he went into the temple, and he turned the money tables over, and he yells at the leaders, and he rebukes them for making a mess of it. Temple was supposed to be a place where people could come, whether Jew or non-Jew, and consider the Creator, consider God. But they made it into a money-making machine, and Jesus exposes them for what they've done, and then he leaves. And so we pick it up in verse 27. The leaders are looking for a way to kill Jesus, but he's popular, and they don't know what to do. How do you take out the most popular man in town? And so they're going to find a way. Verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking into the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Uh, we're just going to like run through this like phrase by phrase. It says, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders came. This is a group known as the Sanhedrin. So if you read the gospel, sometimes it says Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. It's these three groups, 71 men who make up the, what would be the equivalent of Supreme Court and Congress for us. So these are the highest authority. The Sanhedrin were all Jewish and they represented the entire nation to the Roman government that was ruling in Jerusalem. So you don't get any higher than the chief priests, teachers of the law, and otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. And so they, they're trying to figure out how do we get rid of Jesus? So, aha, we're going to catch him in his own words. Now, Jesus, he, he spoke with authority. He turned the tables over. So now they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, Jesus flips it. Verse 29, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he poses a question. John's baptism, that's John the Baptist, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. In verse 31, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say it's from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say, if it's of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So the answer, Jesus, we don't know. So they're trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And what does Jesus do? There's the question, and then there's the question behind the question. Now, those of you who are parents, you do this all the time. Kid comes to you and says, well, mom, do I, do I really have to clean my room? Now, you can, you can go one of two ways. You can simply say, yes, I'm the boss. Go in and do it. I pay the bills. I pay the rent. Or you can find out what's really going on and you can flip it with a question to clarify the question. Mom, do I have to, do I have to clean my room? Well, uh, would you like to sell all your toys? Well, that would be easier, like you'd have less to clean. And so you could flip a question, right? If you want to get to the root of the matter, you can go question, it's called passive aggressive. You can go question <laughs> behind, right, behind the question. We do this all the time. And this is actually how rabbis would teach Jewish rabbis, they still do it today. You ask question, you answer question, question by question. So Jesus takes them to John the Baptist. Now, really what Jesus is getting after, just like with a kid who doesn't want to clean their room, it's not about a dirty room, it's about who's in charge, isn't it? Are you going to do what I 
told you to do what's required of you, or are you in charge? And in the same way, Jesus flips it with his question. He brings up John the Baptist. Now, some of you are wondering, well, why in the world would he bring up John? What does John have to do with it? Jesus is an absolute genius. Keep your finger here. Go to the left in your Bible. Uh, before Mark is Matthew. That's another gospel. And then before that is another M word, Malachi. So just go to the left. You'll find Mark, then Matthew to the left. Before that is the last pages of the Old Testament and Malachi 3. And in your Bible, on your app, I want you to see this because Jesus is not avoiding their question. In the end, he doesn't tell them. We, we just read it. He doesn't tell them by what authority. But actually, he does tell them and he does it in such a subtle way to us, but such a loud way and almost in your face way to them. And Malachi 3 is, is where we get this. Okay, verse 1 of Malachi 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, um, John the Baptist was known, we read in Mark, he was known as a prophet. And remember when John the Baptist is speaking, he's saying, I am not the Messiah to come, but I am the one making a way. I'm the one who's preparing the way for the Lord. Now that's just not like his call sign. That's just not like on his card. He's quoting Malachi 3. As a matter of fact, in Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel, is a quote from Malachi 3 about John the Baptist. If you're lost, hang in there. This is going to be so good. I will send my messenger, that's the Lord speaking, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So when Jesus says, hey, okay, let's talk. John the Baptist, um, where did his authority come from? What Jesus is doing is he's tying John's message back to the Sanhedrin to say, is John the Baptist the messenger of Malachi 3? They would know this by heart. They were expecting God to send a messenger because after the messenger, the Lord will come. So the messenger is going to say, God is returning to the temple. So if they accept John the Baptist, they got to accept what John the Baptist is pointing to. But look at, and look at what happens when the Lord comes, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Graphic language saying when God comes, he's going to burn stuff that shouldn't be there. And he's going to clean stuff that's gotten filthy. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now, who's he going to purify? He will purify the Levites. The people leading the temple are corrupt. So God says and predicts, I'm going to send a messenger. After the messenger, I'm going to come. I'm not going to come to say, nice, hello. I'm going to kind of clean things up. It's dirty. It's a mess. Stuff needs to be fixed. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So verse five, so I will come to put you on trial. So go, thinking back, you can go back to Mark uh, chapter 11. Thinking back to what Jesus is saying, when Jesus brings up John the Baptist, 
what's going to happen? When the messenger comes, who comes next? The Lord comes. And where does the Lord go? He goes to the temple. And what's going to happen in the temple? He's going to clean house. So, you, so they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And he's saying, I am doing exactly what John the Baptist predicted I would do. This is not subtle. He is in their face saying, John the Baptist is the messenger. The messenger is going to prepare. And now the Lord is going to come. And the Lord is not going to rebuke the people. The Lord is not going to say to the average Joe Israelite, you're a mess. I'm going to go straight to the leaders because if the leaders are corrupt, they're going to lead the people into ways of corruption. I love the people. The leaders are the problem. And he's looking straight at the Sanhedrin. He's looking at Congress. He's looking at Supreme Court. He's looking at the most intellectual and the most affluent people of his day and says, the problem is you and the Lord has come. Now, when we read it, we don't see it with those types of lenses. Now, he puts them in a pickle because the Sanhedrin are the most brilliant people in Jesus' day. And it's not like they couldn't connect the dots. They know Malachi 3. They know John the Baptist was pointing to Malachi 3. They know John the Baptist said, I can't even untie or tie the sandals of this Jesus because he's the one at the anointing of Jesus at his baptism. Jesus, I can't baptize you. You're the one. John the Baptist is aware that the Lord has come in the person of Jesus, and that's what he's been proclaiming. And now Jesus has been saying the Lord has come, but the leaders don't get it. So it's not like these guys don't connect the dots. It's that in their heart, they refuse to believe. And this is a good reminder. Uh, God wants to get his message across to us. He wants you to know his heartbeat for your world and your life. But there's two ways of approaching this. There are some people, and maybe you're one of them, who've yet to connect the dots. Uh, you don't make sense. The Bible is unclear. Church is fuzzy. And the message, you don't understand it yet. And for those of you in that camp, if you approach Jesus with honesty, Jesus is totally for that. So he's not rebuking the Sanhedrin, these leaders, because they didn't know. He has something against them because they did know and they do know better, but their hearts are so hard they refuse to believe. So he's not talking down to people who are eager and seeking. He's talking to people who have the knowledge but are so egotistical. They think they know better than God and they refuse to accept Jesus' message. So look at the end of verse 33 of Mark 11. Jesus, they said, we don't know. Uh, whether it's from heaven, back in verse 31, that was a reference to God. So the, the, verse 31, they discussed it among themselves. He said, if we say from heaven, Jews respected God so much they refused to say his name. So when they say from heaven, they're saying from God. If we say John the Baptist is from God, then Jesus is going to ask, why didn't you believe him? Because if the messenger is from God, then Jesus is from God. But if we say he's a human, and look at what it says, they were afraid of the people. Everyone held that John was a prophet. So they're more interested in their own approval ratings. They're more interested in what people think about them than what God thinks about them. And my friend, let me just encourage you, search your soul this morning. If you are more concerned about what other people think you are in terms of relationship with God, then what God thinks, you're going to be severely disappointed. 
It's easy to put a religious front, put on nice clothes, wear a bow tie. It is the year of the bow tie, I'm sorry. Once a month, I'll be wearing a bow tie because 2014 is the year of the bow tie. But I could put on a bow tie and a jacket and shine my shoes and I could be so corrupt in my heart and my soul. And let me tell you, the Lord sees past the outer appearance. The Sanhedrin wore elegant robes, rings on their fingers. Everyone had to like, whoa, kowtow to the leaders when they walked in a room. But Jesus looks past all that stuff. and He looks at our heart. Now that's the sad news. The sad news is they didn't have a heart that was really towards God. And I pray that would never be said about me. And I I pray that would never be said about you. So what does Jesus say? He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And I love it. Jesus is great. He tells them through John the Baptist, I'm really the Lord who's come, but you don't get it, so I'm not going to tell you. And then what does Jesus do? In chapter 12, verse 1, he tells them. I love it. I'm not going to tell you by what authority. Oh, by the way, I do have a story, story time. And so Jesus is like, I'm not going to be obvious, but I've got a story for you. And this story is so powerful. Let's just read it and figure it out. For those of you who have a vineyard, congratulations. We have a vineyard story. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. So he tells them a story. A man planted a vineyard and he put a small wall around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, what's the deal with a vineyard? Why have a vineyard? Again, Jesus is not telling any old story. We're so far removed from the Bible times that we miss it. Uh, The allusion to John the Baptist is an allusion to Malachi 3. The Lord will come. Now, the vineyard is an allusion to Israel. Isaiah 5, we won't do it for time this morning. Write it down. Isaiah 5, if you read it, Isaiah, the prophet of God, speaks, and the Lord says, Israel, my people, is like a vineyard. But in the story of Isaiah 5, uh, Isaiah tells a song about God who took some land, planted a vineyard called Israel, put a wine press in it, put a tower in it, and inspected the grapes and found out that all the fruit was spoiled. And God uses Isaiah through a word picture of a vineyard saying, just like the vineyard, the fruit is spoiled, my people are spoiled. They don't follow me. They don't love me. Instead of bearing fruit, so to speak, that honors me, their lives are corrupt. It's sour grapes and it's a mess. Israel is the vineyard. So when Jesus tells the story, they know exactly what he's talking about. So there's a story about a vineyard. Now, verse two, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, just like Isaiah 5. God plants Israel and God expects them because he loves them that their life would be fruitful because if you know God, you're gonna have a life that's fruitful. But what happens? Verse three, but they seized him. They beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. And they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. And he, he still sent another. And that one, they killed. And he sent many others. Do you get the others, 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 others? Jesus tells a story of, of this, this owner who keeps sending people who get beaten and killed but he keeps sending them anyway. Some of them they beat, others they killed. And then verse six, it transitions. He had one left to send. So the owner 
is going again and again and again to get the attention of the people that are the vineyard. Now, we know exactly what's happening here. God planted Israel, and the word servants, he sent out his servants, is the same word for prophets. What is Jesus doing here? He is retelling the entire story of Israel. We need to get this. Jesus is not telling a cute little fable because he's trying to trick them. They ask, by what authority, Jesus, are you doing all that you do? He says, John the Baptist is going to be the messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. If John the Baptist is the messenger, then I'm the Lord and I've come. But you have no heart for me. And because you have no heart for me, you are just like Israel. And Israel is like a vine, like a vineyard. And God, 700 years before Jesus comes, predicted in a picture what all of human, uh, the entire human race is like. God plants people. God puts you where he puts you. God gives you breath. God gives you food. God gives you a family. And all he wants is you to live in connection like a grape to the vine. He wants you to live in relationship with him. The picture is clear. A five-year-old can get it. If the grape is connected to the vine and trusts in the vine and gets its nutrient from the vine, it will bear fruit. It will be a tasty Uh, good grape. But if it's disconnected from the vine, it will shrivel and it will be a mess and it will be a waste. And so for hundreds of years, it's been the story of Israel. God loves these people. He sends prophets again and again and again. Now I want you to notice here, it goes back to the authority and the clean your room question. The issue here is that they have no room in their heart for God to be the authority. And this is a real trick. This is the real trouble with being American and wealthy and going to church. I think because we're in a country that's basically wealthy, if you don't think you're rich, just come with me on a plane to where I go. All of us, even in our most impoverished state, are wealthy compared to the standards of others around the world. So we live in an affluent society. We sit in comfy seats. We We eat free food, we drink free coffee, we drive in cars, we are affluent. And sometimes we forget that we were made by God for God. And if we are not connected to God and we don't trust in his resource in our world, we will last for a while, but what we produce will be sour. It won't be fruitful in God's sight. And it doesn't lead to life. And so we are just like Israel. So Jesus is not just telling the story of an ancient people. He's telling the human story. And the human story is that God sends messengers to come our way. So you read the scriptures and that's what you're going to get. You get story after story after story. And you wonder, is God thick? Like, I don't mean to be disrespectful. But does God not know what he's doing? Why would God continue to send messages to people who don't want to hear it? Why would God continually go to that kid who says, I won't clean my room, I won't clean my room, I won't clean my room, I won't clean my room. And why do you show love towards that? Why doesn't the parent just take out the anvil and, and, and put the foot down and put that kid in its place? And the word is love. Because God loves us, because God cares for us, He knows what we're like and he wants us to follow him of our own 
human will. He wants us to be in love with him because we want to. He's not out to smack the hammer at us. He is after our heart. And when you follow God because you've considered the options and you see that he is the greatest of all options because he's the creator, God loves it when his kids choose to follow him because they want to. So he sends messengers, messengers, messengers. Now, if you ever read the Bible and you read the book of Judges and you read the book of 1 Kings and you read the Chronicles, you will get depressed. Do not read it in one setting. And if you're going to read it, please read it with caffeine because Judges and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles is depressing because no matter who God sends, the kings grow from worse to worser. It goes from bad to badder. It does not get better. None of the stories in the Old Testament end with a silver lining. They're all depressing. And that is what Jesus is telling here. He's saying this owner loves the vineyard so much, loves the people so much that he's patient. And what does he do? Verse 6, he had one son whom he loved. He sent him saying, they'll respect my son. Actually, they won't, verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took the son and they killed him. And we're supposed to, at this point, like our mouths are supposed to drop open if we read this in the first century. And they threw him out of the vineyard. At this point, when, when Mark's gospel is written and we're in a church and they read this, Everyone looks at each other like, I can't believe it. In the first century, uh, the burying of a body was a sign of respect. There is no way, even if it was your enemy and you killed him on the battlefield, you're going to bury him because life is precious. And so out of respect, you're gonna, you would never leave this person to rot and die. Only your worst enemy that you wanted to make a point, like I have no respect for you. You're not even human. Would you do this kind of behavior? So what do they do? They take the son of the owner. They are renting land from the owner. And here's what they think. And you got to get this. They think that by sending a son, the dad has died. Because the only reason a father would send a son is a son is the executor of a will. So they think in their mind, and everyone hearing this will get this in their mindset. The, the, the owner has died. The son is coming and he's going to probably kick us out, but he's now the owner of the land. If we kill him and throw him away, there'll be no owner of the land. And squatter's rights apply. That is, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If there is no owner of the land and I'm on the land, the land is whose land? It's my land. They have so little respect for the owner that they'll kill the son because their heart is not after the owner and their heart has no respect for God. They could care less. They're willing to kill whoever gets in their way. They are the ruler of their life. Now, you've got to remember, he is telling this story to the Sanhedrin. He's telling it to the president. He's telling it to the Congress. He's telling it to the Supreme Court justice. He's saying, you're so wicked, you're putting on a good front in God's house but you can care less about the prophets because you killed them. And now you can care less about the son. And you have so little respect for God. Jesus is predicting what's going to happen, that you're going to kill me. And you're not even going to be there to bury me. The Sanhedrin was not there to bury Jesus. They left him on the cross like an animal. Why? Because their hearts were so far 
from God. It goes back to the kid in the room. In their case, they're a child that's so disrespectful, does not care about their parent, shows no love for their parent, that they don't even want to hear what the parent has to say. It's not about cleaning the room. It's about who's in charge. And you can get to the place in your own soul where you squeeze God out and say, I'm in charge. And God, thank you very much. If you created the universe, ha, ha, ha. Thank you. I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. I can do life without you. As a matter of fact, this is not your house, God. It's my house. You see, the, that's the, that's the, this isn't a cute Sunday school story. This is a wicked indictment against a group of wicked people. But what does Jesus say is about to happen? Verse 9. This is where it gets great. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Oh, this is going to be awesome. He will come and kill those tenants. For a Sunday morning talk. <laughs> you know what Jesus is saying? Israel is the vineyard. They're the tenants. They know this. It's a parable that everybody gets. He's going to come and kill them and give the vineyard to others. These are the rulers of God's house. And he's like, there's going to come a time. It's going to happen very quickly. You guys are going to be gone and your entire structure is going to be gone. I've come. The Lord has come, Malachi uh, 3, to clean house like a refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. I'm going to throw you in the washing machine and I'm going to wash away all this filth. The house is corrupt and Jesus is not friendly. This isn't happy Jesus. So verse 10, haven't you read this passage? And then he goes to quote Psalm 118. Now you just got to know this. This is boring, so what? Um, if, if, if you're annoyed by this background, who cares? Psalm 118 is a psalm that they read on the way up to the temple to worship. Psalm 118 is one of those psalms that thousands and thousands of people sing about the faithfulness of God as they're going up to the temple to worship. So Jesus quotes one of the songs they sing at church, so to speak. And this is what he says. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. You're like, I don't get it. I didn't get it either. If you look at this though, this reference from Psalm 118 is to a stone in the temple, in Solomon's temple. Every stone needed to be perfect, more than perfect, 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 perfect. So when they brought it to Solomon's temple and they built it, if it wasn't perfect, they would just reject it. They didn't do any of the chiseling, any of the construction on God's holy ground. It had to show up perfect or they rejected it. But one of the stones that was rejected for the temple ended up being the corner chief stone for Solomon's own porch. So the stone, this is all you need to know, the stone that wasn't good for the temple actually was the perfect stone for a whole new structure, King Solomon's porch. This little reference Jesus uses as a twist to say, you're rejecting me in the temple just like they rejected a stone. But you need to know it's wonderful in God's eyes. The Lord did this. The Lord knows you're about to reject me, but you're not just rejecting me. You're rejecting the creator God and I'm about to start something new. This stone that's rejected for the temple, the temple will be gone and I am about to establish a new work and a new kingdom that will be for all people. What the temple was supposed to do, now Jesus will do 
in his own body. So what Jesus is saying in not so covered terms is the temple isn't the center anymore. Jesus is the new temple. Now, we're not going to get into it now because Jesus is going to tell them about this a little later on, but you need to see this is how it works. While Jesus is rejected by the Sanhedrin, he's not rejected by God, and Jesus is fitting to do something new. That's why John chapter 2, we'll throw it on the screen for you. John 2, Jesus answered them about the temple. He said, destroy the temple. I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, but it's taken 46 years to build the temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. And John tells us, like in parentheses, but the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. So Jesus is using the structure he says this parable at the temple to use a point. This building is no longer going to be the center of worship. It should have been, but you've made it corrupt. But God in his goodness already had a plan. He chose a stone. If you would have accepted me, I would fit in the temple. But because you reject me, God in advance created a plan. And the plan is the very person of Jesus. So now wherever Jesus is, is the place where anyone can come to worship. And where does this fit for us? Because this is like obscure. At this point, let's just finish the text here because it's bad news. Verse 12, the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against who? Them. But they were afraid of the crowd, and so they went away. And that's where the tension ends. They came to trick Jesus, but Jesus throws it back in their face. Jesus has all authority, and Jesus has come to be the temple. The temple is the place where people meet with God. And so it was a building. You'd come to meet with God, but it was so corrupted that the Lord himself came and said, fine, if the building doesn't work, I'm going to come. So now anyone who comes to Jesus Christ, anyone who comes to him, the person, God himself, can find refuge, safety, can find help, can find healing, can find wholeness. If you come to Jesus, there is life. Where you went to temple, you'd find life. Now it's the person of Jesus. So... In light of Jesus, let's look ahead. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We'll put it on the screen. You may want to write it down. Uh, Paul applies this very concept to the Christian life. And he says this. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the temple was the place where we met with God, but Jesus in coming makes himself the temple. So Jesus is the place where we meet with God. And so now, fast forward 2,000 years later, when any one of us says, Jesus, I want to know the living God. Jesus, go back to the whole house analogy. I'm just a kid. I'm living in your house. I've been resisting you. I've been pushing you away. But now I want to humble myself and say, God, you're the owner. You're the parent. You're the Lord. I want to put myself under your authority. Your authority is the best authority. You know what's better than I do. Your way is better than my way. When we humble ourselves, yes, Jesus is the temple, but then at that point, in a way that's mystical and beautiful, you become the temple. 
And so you and I, because Jesus comes by his Holy Spirit and lives within us and changes us and gives us a whole new heart and a new perspective, in a very real sense, I can worship God anywhere at any time. Now, somebody's saying, well, so what? This is radical and this is actually only 2,000 years old. Prior to 2,000 years, you would have to go to one city and one temple to know the living God. But God loves us so much, he sends messengers and messengers and messengers. And now he sent his son and his son dies and rises again. And now by the Spirit, he sent someone your way to tell you this good news that you can know the living God. And at any time and in any place, you can walk in right relationship with God. This is radical, but this is the life that we're called to. This is the good news. The good news is that I don't have to wait till Sunday or any old day to worship God. This is not the temple. This is not. This is called the auditorium. And it's Liberty High School. But this is the place where people can meet with God. And if you know what, if we all crammed in my living room, A, we would die. But if we did and we fit in my living room, <laughs> Jim's laughing because he has the same size living room, we would die, right? But let's just say we crammed in my room. That is the place where God dwells. And if we went onto the soccer field and we began to worship God, that's the place where God dwells. And if you're in your car on the way to work and you're, you, you cry out to God and you pray or you worship, that's the place where you worship God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives and resides with you. So worship is not a weekly experience. Worship is a moment-by-moment -moment experience. You can know God moment-by-moment, week-by-week, month-by-month. You can live in communion with God. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem. And you don't have to go to temple. And you don't have to kill a sheep. And you don't have to wash your hands. You can simply say, Jesus, here I am. This is the gospel. That anyone's invited and everyone's accepted. Now, four things I want us to think about as we respond. We need to respond in worship because your response right now, hear me, my friends, your response is crucial because when Jesus tells a story, he tells a story not to be cute. He tells a story to prove a point. Let's go back to the house and the parent and the kid. You're the child. Let's just assume you're not the parent. What is your posture? What is your attitude? What is your response to God who shows us the way to live? And by the way, gives us a house to live in, who provides, who loves, who cares. What is your heart's response? Because no, your clothes don't impress, but your heart can be received by God. God can come and do a work in your heart. Four things. Number one, you need to know that God is the owner. Always. It doesn't seem very right. It just, no, well, I'm like, I own a percentage, right? Like I own my house, like outright. I don't have a mortgage. I, uh, that's not me. I'm renting. But like, you know, you may say, I, I, have you seen my IRA? Do you know how much cash I have stored, stored up? Well, for one, let's just be real. It could be gone in a blip. You don't own anything. Everything is borrowed. And if God chose to take it away, my friend, it would be gone. Everything is owned by God. Now, I know that intellectually. If I actually believe that in my soul, how would I respond? How would you respond to God? If God owns everything, then he planted us. We did not plant him. He started us. We did not start him. And so we need to come and worship God with an honest and open heart. 
we are not the king. And as long as we treat ourselves as higher than we ought to, our worship will be veneer at best. For the most part, it probably would just be lip. And, and remember, God doesn't just see your lips. He knows your heart. Secondly, God's love is extravagant. He sends messengers. You need to know in the story, they beat the messenger, then they beat the head of the messenger, then they kill the messenger, and listen, God the owner sent another messenger, even after they killed one. And then he sent another, and they killed him. And then he sends his son, knowing they just killed everybody. And they kill the son. And that is, Jesus is giving the gospel. That God loves us, that he sends his son because he cares. So what that means is you may be feeling convicted, like, man, my attitude is really, my attitude stinks towards God. But God knows that, and God loves you anyway. And God's love for you is so big that he's patient with you, and he's hoping that if he's patient with you, that his kindness towards you would lead you to repent. And so this morning, if you hear God's voice and you know he's speaking to your own situation, the best response is the honest response. And it's to say, God, I'm sorry for resisting. Dad, I'm sorry for saying, I don't want to clean my room. It's your house and it's your stuff. Yeah, I want to do what you want because your way is better. Not because I have to, to impress you, but because your way is better. Third, God's patience shouldn't be tested. This isn't a hard one. If you know you're going against God, stop. If you know you're resisting God, stop. Because God's patience is not something to be toyed with. Here's why. What does God do, and this is a hard one, what does God do to the owners, the, the tenants on that farm? He throws them out and they're dead. Now that, that seems like, well, God's, God wouldn't do that. Yes, he would. Read the Bible. God kills people. Yes, he does. Because God always does what's right. Now, some of us, because we've seen so much injustice, we think that God is like a human and that God is capricious. And God says, I like you and I don't like you. Smash, blessing. And he's not that way. We think that God is mean and, and like us. God is not like us. God has every right to take anyone's life because he started it. And God is good and he always does the right thing. Hear me. If God judges someone, you never have to wonder, is God doing the right thing? God always does the right thing. And the right thing is when someone resists, 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 and then causes other people to resist and causes their kids to resist. And now these kids don't even want to serve God because these people are giving the wrong view of God. The best thing that God can do is remove them. So that these kids who don't know any better can know how much God loves them. So don't say that God is not mean at times. He is. And it's good. It's not a contradiction. God will remove those who resist him. Now, if you're breathing, here's good news. You still got a chance. If you're breathing, you got a chance. So you think, well, am I squashed? Is it over for me? No, it's not over for you. But my friend, if you live in resistance to God and you end your life in resistance to God, God help you. You don't have a chance. Now, I could be a nice Christian pastor and tell you it's all good. It's all good. 
You did some good. God knows you're an upstanding person. And whatever you did bad, you didn't mean to do it. It's a bunch of baloney. It's a lie. And it's not going to stand in the presence of God. You will be judged. I will be judged. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll give an account for every deed, every thought, everything. And what we'll do is we'll say, God, here I am. I got nothing, but thank you for accepting me. So we don't earn God's favor. We enjoy it. And we live in light of it. So today, here's the good news. Don't resist God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are little things that need to be tweaked. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a big thing that needs to be tweaked, and it's called rebellion and sin. And I would encourage you today, if you hear God's voice, walk away from your posture that's against God and just turn to him. And anybody who turns to the Lord will be saved. You, if you turn to Jesus Christ, will be rescued. You'll be accepted. You'll be forgiven. The choice is yours. Number four, God gives life to all who follow the Son. That's what we get from the story. If they would have accepted the Son, the owner wouldn't have kicked him out. So anyone who receives the Son has life. First John says it, First John 5. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So let me just ask you this morning, do you have the Son of God? Are you following Jesus Christ? Have you come to his temple, so to speak? Have you said to Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know you. And here I am. I got junk. Got nothing to offer but myself. But if you do that, let me tell you, my friend, Jesus forgives. The past is gone. He cleans all sin. He gives us his presence, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that would come on the temple now comes inside of you. He gives you a family. You're a part of the family of God. And the family of God is good because I need you to keep me in check. So it's not like God just comes and has a relationship with you and it's just you and Jesus. No, it's we and Jesus. It's a group thing. You know God and I know God and we learn from one another and we get a new mission. God gives us this new thing to do. My life now is different because my leader is different. Now I can go for God and do whatever he wants and I have the power by the Spirit to do it. And there's a new hope. I get Jesus now. I get Jesus tomorrow. And in the future, there's Jesus. That's all about receiving the Son. It's not just like Jesus forgives your sin. Go do whatever you want. No, it's about a new family, a new life, a new mission, a new hope, and it's all in Jesus. And so this morning, if you've gotten the point, good, you need Jesus. I need Jesus. And this morning you can receive him.